What we are now hearing is even more concerning this morning from Iraqi officials, and that is that not only have they taken the town of al-Baghdadi, but they are now moving towards the al-Assad airbase. These are ISIS forces. KFI AM 640, Bill Carroll. Valentine's Day coming up this weekend. Big, big weekend. President's Day this is huge. I was out shopping all last night and just trying to figure out, you know, whether to get her a car this year or maybe a Learjet or something. It's so hard to know, isn't it, with Valentine's Day? It's just so difficult to know. But uh, are you kidding? No, I was at the Kings game last night. I wasn't shopping for anything. I better pick something up, I suppose. Okay, so here we go, the Friday show. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what's going on uh, with this western Iraqi town. Depends on the headlines you read. We want to get it clarified right now as best we can. Uh, either ISIS militants have seized a western Iraqi town and menaced uh, a base that is housing U.S. military personnel, or they've seized part of it. And you got to wonder about the timing, right, with the president uh, asking Congress for uh, more ability to wage war against them is this a deliberate attempt to uh, draw American fighters into the battle. Tom Rivers is covering the story from uh, ABC News in London and joins me on the line right now. Thanks for doing this, Tom. Appreciate it. Sure thing, Bill. Are we getting good information out of this uh, this town in in western Iraq, or is it sketchy? It's it's still a bit sketchy, but I'll bring it bring it up as to speed as much as we possibly can. El Baghdadi, a town in western Anbar province, basically ISIS uh, did control it, called all the shots there, and it's very very near this. Uh, Al Assad Air Base, where there's between three and four hundred U.S. personnel doing training there, but uh, it looks like from various reports now that uh, Iraqi forces have been pushing back some of those ISIS forces in the town itself, and a key part was was the police station and ISIS did control the police station, but uh, they've been forced out of there, but they're not totally out of the town. So uh, they still are in different parts of the area, but uh, the police station looks like it's under the control of the Iraqis once again. Right. That's a part of Iraq, though, where they have uh, a lot of strength, right, where they, there's a, a lot of control. Oh, yeah. Right? Exactly. Uh, that's one of their uh, their main bases, if you will. And uh, it's interesting as well, uh, there are some reports that uh, they may have somehow gotten a hold of Iraqi uniforms. Eight of these individuals that uh, tried to get through the front gate of the base, confronted by uh, Iraqi forces, uh, killing all eight of them. Uh, various reports, too. Iraqi soldiers guy died in that uh, hail of bullets as well. Apparently, Apache, American Apache helicopters from Baghdad were called in there, but by the time they got there, uh, the uh, situation was over. But uh, it just shows you a pretty brazen attack. Uh, U.S. forces were said to be about two miles away on the sprawling base, but that's that's pretty darn close. Well, how big is this base? It's huge. It's, it's it, it you know goes for maybe uh, seven miles, something like that. It okay. is it is vast. And so there are two uh, things going on. They're attacking the town at the same time in Iraqi uniforms. They tried to infiltrate the base, which is where these uh, U.S. soldiers are based right now, training Iraqi soldiers. 
Correct. One of one of three bases where there are American personnel. There's a fourth base as well, Erbil, where uh, other coalition uh, forces, uh, such as the U.K., are, are training uh, on, on very basic things like uh, basic weaponry, et cetera. But uh, these, are, these are the areas where they're saying, look, this is how you do the job, and they get the Iraqis back there, and it's kind of back to school time, and uh, then they send them out. And at, at one point, they were firing on the base, I understand. Yeah, I think they, they, they got their, their boots on the ground, if you want to use that one. And they, uh, they, they were uh, on the actual base, uh, but uh, they were confronted and, uh, and dealt with pretty quickly. This base has been hit by mortar fire before as well, I understand, at least one time. you got about 320 U.S. Marines there, but uh, not very accurate fire, kind of random fire at the base. Yeah, but it's you know it just shows you that they are you know close enough to, uh, to if they're close enough to get mortars in. That means that they're uh, they're out there and they're they're quite close. So uh, it, it's it's uh, it's it's worrying. And uh, again, uh, as you said at the top, if uh, it comes at a time where there could possibly be more U.S. intervention there, and uh, if they incurred some kind of U.S. casualties, of course that might affect the equation. Well, yeah, I mean, you could scratch your head, I guess, at what the strategy might be there, but could be uh, because it could, they could empower Congress to say, yeah, we got to give the president whatever he wants. We got to deal with these guys. At the same time, if they'd manage to capture or kill yeah. U.S. soldiers, you might also get that public backlash that says, what are we doing there? And that that's probably more likely what they were doing is. I would guess so. It's, it's sometimes it's hard to it's hard to judge, yeah. but uh, you know, six of one, half dozen of the other, they're stirring up problems, any way, shape, or form, uh, and they've done it in the past. And and look at the Jordanian pilot; they thought that would uh, flip the country, Jordan, into saying, "Look, let's get out of here. We don't want to do anything." It had the opposite effect. So it it, it really is hard to call. So the fighting is still going on there, possibly, and uh, that town could change hands again if it's if they uh, if ISIS is intent on launching any kind of real offensive against that city. Yeah, it looks like at this stage of the game they still control parts of it, and uh, it de- depends upon how determined, what kind of backing there will be for the Iraqi forces to uh, to flush everybody out of there. But uh, as of right now, the latest reports are uh, it is still in dispute. All right. And the good news is no American forces involved in any direct combat there at the moment. Yeah, exactly. yeah. no no shot fired, anything of that nature at, the, at this particular incident. But, again, it's worrying that it happened so so quick and uh, so close to uh, the American contingent there. And, uh, you know, it, it, it is a worrying development, let's put it that way. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. Take care. Tom Rivers with ABC News in London. Uh, you know, we should actually go live to the base. I understand Brian Williams was there this morning yeah, when that attack uh, occurred, and he was uh, firing mortar shells back at ISIS. He put up a vicious uh, fight there. It was, and it's just an extraordinary couple of hours he had where he felt that his life was <laughs> in peril at any time. And the Pope called him and said, "Brian, you need to get out of there. You know, we're going to." Uh, it's your and friend he saved some puppies uh, from. Uh, well, that's why he was there ISIS. in the first place to try to rescue some puppies from. Actually, Brian Williams seems to have. A little more trouble. What? Starting to mount. Yeah, a couple more stories are being questioned oh. about Brian Williams. That wasn't just a cheesy joke. That was actually a very cheesy segue oh. into what we're going to talk so about you're next. You're the talk host. Thank you very much. Uh, I learned everything I know from Brian Williams. He and I used to hang together back in the... No. Okay. See, that's why he can never come back.
<laughs> yeah. You just It's just not possible. No, there, there are a couple of other stories, pretty interesting ones, where he's being questioned again. That's coming up next. Rob, what are you working on? Uh, two of our four helicopters were hit by ground fire, including the one I was in. No kidding. Uh, RPG and, and AK-47. KFI AM 640, Bill Carroll. More trouble for Brian Williams. I don't know. There's only one, well, two possible conclusions you can come to here, seriously. That Brian Williams is either a pathological liar. This is honestly some kind of psychological condition at work here. Or he's just Forrest Gump. He just stumbles around from one amazing story to another. He's just always in the right place at the right time. He's just always there. And it's, it's becoming, I'm now feeling kind of sad for this guy. I really am. NBC should... I think their exit strategy is to say he's suspended for six months and then let him in a few weeks or months walk away himself so he can save face. That's what the strategy is. There's no way they could ever want this guy back on the air. It's just, it's too embarrassing. There's just no credibility left. But the exit strategy is not working because here's the thing. Until they pull the plug on him, there's going to be media story after media story after media story about every exaggeration, every outright lie the guy's ever told. And it seems like there's a lot of them now. They're just spilling out everywhere. The uh, the latest, well, they're, I don't know, where do we begin? The Navy SEAL story? The Pope story? The Berlin Wall story? You know, he and Tom Brokaw, he said at uh, some speaking engagement, 2008, I think, was the date. They were there when the Berlin Wall came down. Although it's kind of infamous that Tom Brokaw was the only journalist from the United States there at the time, right? Now, that one, I'm not... Again, it's just a little exaggeration. When he told the story, he was there, it sounds like, but he got there later, maybe the next day, and he may not have seen, he may not have been there that first night when the wall started to come down, but he was there. They were tearing down parts of that wall for days, weren't they? And that maybe he did take a little piece of the Berlin Wall home with him. So it, it, it might even not be that he was there, but he just wants himself, he seems to want to push himself right up front in the forefront of history instead of in the background or late arriving, which is usually the case for people who are in the news business. They usually get there right after the story because nobody anticipates the World Trade Center being hit, right? You know, But Brian was surprised he wasn't standing on the top of one of those buildings watching the plane come in the way he tells stories. So what do you have first for me here, Brian? This Is, is this the one here from CBS News? Uh, they're saying, you know, it's interesting because this story that he's telling now was at a, a forum at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in 2008. And an audience member asked Williams what his wow interview was or the wow moment in his career. And this is his answer. What was my wow? I've, I've been so fortunate. I was at the Brandenburg Gate the night the wall came down. Williams said he covered the demolition of the Berlin Wall in 1989, but there are now reports that he actually arrived the day after the wall came down, not the night of. Williams' predecessor, Tom Brokaw, was the only American anchorman to report live from the scene on that historic day. You lose credibility, then I think... 
you lose everything, particularly for the nightly news. Jessica Levinson is vice president of the L.A. Ethics Commission and a professor at Loyola Law School. She believes Williams lost credibility last week when he admitted he embellished his account of events on board a Chinook helicopter over Iraq in so 2003. Report. I want to apologize. I said I was traveling in an aircraft that was hit. By and then the correction you've heard a thousand times before. But you see, you see the reason you, you have to think that there's an illness at play is that what's wrong with the truth there? Biggest wow moment. You know, I wasn't there the night the wall came down, but I was there within 24, 48 hours. And to be there in the aftermath of that, I mean, isn't that still a great story? I wish I'd been there right afterwards. That would be a story to tell for the rest of your life, but it's all, everything is just tweaked to make him just a little bit more heroic, a little closer to the story. Then there's the SEAL Team 6 story where he goes into uh, great detail about what happened after SEAL Team 6, it was announced that they were the ones who got bin Laden in 2011. And he said on the nightly news that we have some idea which of our special operations teams carried this one out. Then he talked to David Letterman shortly after bin Laden was killed. It happens to be a team I flew into Baghdad with on the condition that I would never speak of what I saw on the aircraft, what aircraft we were on, and what we were carrying or who we were after. Then when he told it another time, he said he'd been told not to make eye contact with them or initiate any conversation with the SEALs. But he said that didn't stop him. He befriended the men, got into a conversation with one of the elite soldiers about the knife he was carrying. Darned if that knife didn't show up in my office a couple weeks later. Darned if it didn't show up a couple weeks later. Really? Now he's got this souvenir. People just love Brian Williams, don't they? Don't they? He also claimed that after a decade after he was embedded with this team, they sent him a souvenir from the raid on bin Laden's compound. I got this white envelope, and in it was a thank you note, unsigned. On the late show, he said, in it was a piece of fuselage of the blown-up Black Hawk in that courtyard sent to me by one of my friends. Now you got a bunch of guys, former Navy SEAL guys, SEAL Team Six guys on embedded journalists. We didn't, we hated journalists. I don't remember any embedded journalists. That doesn't sound like it happened at all. Uh, even even uh, Brandon Webb, who helped train the American sniper Chris Kyle, and who was a friend of the show. You know, after he was on the show, he sent me a bullet that he'd removed from Bin Laden's body. No, uh, obviously that didn't happen either. But he has been on the show, which I wish you get him again to ask him about this. But, you know, again, his argument can be, well, he wasn't there, but it was another SEAL Team 6. And it's an easy one because SEAL Team 6 guys, until recently, didn't ever talk to the media. No one was ever going to stand up and refute his story. What do you have here, Brian, now? You have Williams, uh, Berlin Wall, falling audio. Okay, let's hear that. First off, Williams hungry. Oh, yes. Well, <laughs> she's she's referencing an, uh, an appearance I made on John Stewart that I live to regret. Go ahead. After having the... You've been fortunate enough to escort Mrs. Reagan here and speaking how lo- how far you've come. What was your wow interview? Have you had a wow interview, the one where you're saying, I can't believe I'm in the same room with this person, I'm fortunate enough to be speaking to this person, or if you haven't had it, who is it going to be? Great question. Um, First of all, I don't having, have an answer, I'll make uh, it up. Having walked in here the way I did and with the company I kept tonight, I can say uh, that I've now walked uh, two beautiful women down the aisle in the course of one uh, one lifetime. Don't you Actually, roll your I eyes now when you hear this guy talking? Throwing up a little. Um, <laughs> uh, 
what was my wow? I've I've been so fortunate. So I was at the Brandenburg okay, so Gate the night the wall came down. How about his Pope story? What, his I chipped a piece of my own off of that wall, and it's framed and hanging in my den with the next day's newspaper headline. I was the first person to walk into the hotel room of Nelson Mandela the morning he woke up and learned he'd been elected president. From breaking rocks in the, the hot sun person. on Robben Island to president of South Africa. The day of the State of the Union, President Bush had a, a, a small group over for an off-the-record lunch that turned into a, a two-hour freewheeling session. Uh, and I sat there in the residence with the table configured in front of the window in a suite of room too well, Mrs. Reagan, where the Bush family gathers for big events and Thanksgiving and Christmas, looking out onto the South Lawn through bulletproof glass, as is through our modern necessity. Proof and glass, thought, as is our modern necessity. This guy's a dime store novelist, isn't he? Please. How about that? Even when he was young, 1979, NBC News published a, uh, an interview. I was a student at Catholic University, and over the course of two hours, chatted up a Secret Service agent who spilled like a cup of coffee and told me that the Pope would be coming our way straight up the steps of a side door at the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception. I positioned myself and held out my hand and said, Welcome to Catholic University, Holy Father. And he embraced my hand with both of his, made the sign of the cross, and said a blessing to me. Maybe. How many Secret Service agents just start spilling the details of where the Pope is about to be? Well, really? these days, I would believe it, but back well, then, Only no. if you're a hooker. Yeah. <laughs> not if you're some young student. Well, maybe Brian Williams, you know, has a, another job. He has the best luck in the world, this guy. He's just always in the right place at exactly the right moment. It's amazing to me. It's like absolutely that amazing on, to me. On Saturday Night Live that uh, I forget her name, the woman played, where she always had to top the other person's story. She always had to go one yeah. better, no matter well, what anybody said. Well, but we said. all know somebody Chris, like uh, that. Chris, uh, uh, Christian Wick. Everybody knows somebody like that. That's, And it's the most insecure person in the room. That might be what it is, insecurity. As we head into Valentine's weekend, we're going to talk to a, a columnist who says, you should marry that guy. Settle. <laughs> Coming up, first here's KFI AM 640, Bill Carroll. Check out our webpage today, KFIM640.com. These slightly older women posing in very sexual ways. And the question is, does she still have it? The answer might be, if the last time you got banged was right after the big bang, maybe it's time to pack it in. Uh, but you can see for yourself. And don't forget, on our line page... We left it up. No, not the picture of my wife. That's still there, too. But the, uh, the little experiment that Brian and I did yesterday into uh, Fifty Shades of Grey S&M. Right there in the control room in front of Todd. He's a changed man as a result. And uh, think about uh, S&M. It, it kind of hurts is what I found out. You can see the video exclusively on our line page just by going and downloading the app absolutely free. Just in time for Valentine's Day. The author of a very controversial, best-selling book, Lori Gottlieb, is a columnist with the New York Times. Marry him. The case for settling for Mr. Good enough. Not her first time on the show. I, I guess it uh, must have gone okay because she's back again. How you doing, Lori? Hi. Good. How are you? Good. Good to talk to you again. Yeah, it's great to be here. 
I, did you, uh, I, I just like the starting point for your book because, uh, all my wife's friends are about this age, you know, where they've been waiting for the right guy, the perfect guy for so long. They're starting to think he doesn't exist. And some of them are just going out and getting in vitro, having kids on their own. Uh, some have decided to try dating women. I mean, it's just, it's a very common thing. It seems these days for women going, where's my Prince charming. And you got to that too, didn't you? I did get to that. That That's how I ended up writing the book, is that I saw all of these single women out there, and of course, all of our girlfriends tell us, oh, you're so great, you're so wonderful, I can't believe you're still single, and I wanted to find out why everybody was still single. And did you reach any conclusions? <laughs> Yes, I did. Yes, I did. That's what that's what marry him is about. And I, I really looked at what was going on in, in, in the ways that we were dating and what our expectations were in terms of what we thought would make us happy. I, I just find a real disconnect with the women I know between what they say they want and who they date. You know, I well, want someone who's smart and understanding is going to be a good dad, but like the guy's a serial dater a-hole. What, what makes you think he's that guy? Right. And then there are also all of these contradictions like, you know, I want somebody who is charming but doesn't flirt with other people. I want somebody who is going to be a good dad but, is, you know, is also, uh, you know, like super exciting in all these other ways. And, and I think that a lot of times the qualities they're looking for just don't exist in one human being. Did you go through the experience where you saw your friends around you marrying guys that you thought, what is she doing? I just keep looking. This is not the guy. You know, sometimes I did, and now I'm like, that, that guy is so hot. <laughs> <laughs> really? I think I think our needs change over time, too. So I think that part of it is, you know, when, when people were really smart and they married these really great guys early on, but they weren't sort of, you know, the media's view of who, who Prince Charming was, um, these guys turned out to be amazing husbands and fathers and lovers and best friends and all of those things that people say they want. But I think that a lot of people are, are told to look for different things, especially now. I think that people think they have so much choice. I mean, you go online, and the minute you email someone, it says, and here are five other people that are just like this person you just emailed. The person that hasn't even received the email yet, and already you're told to keep looking. You know, from the guy's perspective, Lori, you go through a period, if you're an average-looking guy, and, you know, you, you, you date, you're outgoing, and you're doing fine, but you always have to work at it. There, can't, there comes a point in your life, and it's usually around 40, where all of a sudden you hear this change, and women are starting to go, what a great guy and what a great catch, and he's so handsome and so, and you're thinking, really, I'm the same guy you've been pretty much ignoring and has to, be, has to beg for the past 10 years. And that tells you that something, it's not the men who've changed, something in the women has changed that they see those men differently. The average guy with a decent job who treats you well, opens the door for you, does all of those things, but may, may not be that really sexy bad boy guy. Right, right. Well, I think we get a lot of messages about, um, you know, we're so empowered and we have all this choice and we can wait as long as we want to get married. But that's not really true, um, you know, especially if you want to have kids. But even if you don't, you're going to change a lot over time and what you're going to want is going to change a lot over time. And so I think that, you know, when people are younger and say you're 27 and you're a woman, you can date older, you can date younger, you, you can date anyone. But that's not going to be the same at 37 or 47. And I think people, you know, tend to feel like, well, that's anti-feminist to say, but it, it, it's actually what happens. But should you just accept that that's the way things work now as women get married later and wait longer to have their children, that you will eventually grow into the right guy, the, the, the kind of more comfortable, better dad, better husband fit? Or are you telling women, 
No, no, you've got to shake off your old expectations and make a conscious effort to change. I think that people have to actually raise their standards rather than lower their standards. I think that people are confused by the title with, you know, settling for Mr. Good Enough. We're all Mr. and Ms. Good Enough. I mean, everybody has to compromise to be with another person. If you don't want to compromise, don't get in the relationship business. But I think that what happens is that a lot of people um, – you know, they, they don't look for things like kindness and generosity and stability, and they are very, very attracted to people who don't have those qualities, and then they wonder, you know, why can't they find somebody? So I think that I want people to actually raise their standards and look for the things that are going to be important to them when they're spending their life with somebody as opposed to this guy's really exciting to go to Tahiti with. Well, if you ask nice guys, they, they will all have a story to tell of the, uh, the female friend that they were in love with who would come to them, some idiot guy dumped them, and talk about how I'm treated so badly and I'd really like a guy like you, someone who's nice and treats me with respect and we're really friends. And the guy's sitting there all the time going, I know a guy who's like me, me. But you feel like you're invisible. It's called the friend zone. And right. once a guy's in that friend zone, he won't get out. And he's introduced to all of the, that woman's friends as, oh, here's a really nice guy. We can all hang out and be one of our buddies. No guy wants to be there, but they can't get out. Yeah, but here's the thing. Once he gets a girlfriend, all of a sudden she's going to say, oh, what about him? Once he becomes not available, she's going to be really excited about him. Really? What is that, the competitive thing women have? I, I, I think that there's there's something going on where the the women who end up finding it hard to, to find a partner go for unavailable. They go for, you know, they don't go for the people who are actually going to make them happy in marriage. And they don't realize they're doing it, but they do it over and over. It's the same person, different name. It keeps going on, and then they're 39, and they say, wait, I don't understand. I'm so, you know, I have all these great qualities. Why am I still single? Well, you're still single because you didn't look for somebody who had great qualities in turn are women figuring it out in time or too late what was your experience and what about the women you know i think that a lot of women are kind of uh you know learning from from the mistakes of people older than them um and that doesn't mean that you need to pick somebody just to get married i'm 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 a big proponent of don't get married if if it's not the right guy but i think that people won't even go on a second date with somebody that they had a good time with because they think oh there's somebody more you know this that or the other thing out there there's somebody taller there's somebody who's more ambitious there's somebody who's you know whatever it is um they don't like the way the person dressed on the date they don't like a comment the person made. There was a there's a survey in the book where women and men were asked what would it take to go on a second date with somebody, and men said they needed three things. They needed her to be uh, warm and kind. They needed her to be interesting to talk to and attractive to him, not like Angelina Jolie, but just, you know, attractive to him. That seems reasonable. Women named 300 things, 300 things that would rule out a guy for a second date because they feel like there's always going to be another guy around the corner. I had a woman tell me just in the last week that we'd been out on a date. And uh, I said, okay, and what happened? She said, well, I decided to want to date you a second time because when I told you that I was Italian, you said, oh, I love Italian food. I'd love for you to cook for me sometime. She <laughs> said, so I, I, I immediately went, I'm done with this guy. I said, seriously, I don't even like Italian food. Maybe I was just, I don't remember, but maybe I was just making conversation awkwardly trying to get to know you. Or maybe I was making an awkward joke and she said, I know it you know I look at your Facebook page and I see how your life is and you're married and attractive woman and beautiful kids and 
you seem like a decent guy, but that was the one thing that turned me off. Sometimes I think we, we look for problems. Well, I think that, that women especially make up stories. You know, men don't sort of make up entire stories about the future, what's going to happen with this person necessarily from that first date. Women immediately decide, is this someone who's going to fit into this picture of my future or is this not? And they don't do it consciously, but when they rule out people based on these, these seemingly trivial reasons, um, usually it's because it doesn't fit into their narrative of what they think their future is supposed to be like. And my point in the book is that you don't know who you're going to fall in love with until you actually fall in love with him. So you think you have this idea that he has to be a certain way, but why don't you go spend another two hours with the person, get a free dinner, and, you know, like, like what's the problem? Why can't you spend another two hours with someone that you had a good time with the first time? Yeah, and listen to your uh, friends who are married because a lot of them will say the same thing. Wow, this is not the kind of guy I thought I'd marry. Exactly. And in fact, there are studies in the book that show that people, you know, so many people who are really, really happy in their marriages say, yeah, I almost didn't go out on a second date with that guy, or I didn't even want to meet him, or I didn't really even, you know, know that I was, you know, really excited about him until like two months in. Thank you, Lori. Are you going to have a happy Valentine's Day? Are you in love? It's all good? I, I am going to have a happy Valentine's Day. Good. I Enjoy hope you it. do, too. Thanks for talking to us. Okay, thanks so much. Lori Gottlieb, New York Times bestselling author and columnist. Her book is Marry Him, The Case for Settling for Mr. Good Enough. And there's a link on our webpage, kfim640.com. If you want to buy the book, uh, it'll take you right there if you need to. Coming up next, a California Assemblywoman made some comments about uh, terrorists and Muslims and the Muslim community saying, you've got to apologize. She's going to join us. Will she apologize? You'll find out coming up next. But first, don't forget to go to our line page and check out our S&M uh, sex tape. Me and one of the staff members in the control room. That's all I'm going to tell you. This video on our line page. Download it free and uh, check it out for yourself. Yeah, we did that yesterday. It's getting a lot of attention. I thought it'd be viral by now, 100 million views, but uh, we're a little short of that. Uh, coming up in the 11 o'clock hour, the creator of the world's most famous symbol, Hashtag has uh, tried to create something new, a, a lifestyle that he's trying to spread. Again, just in time for Valentine's Day. All right. So we've got this uh, California lawmaker who made some comments on her Twitter account. Hashtag oops. And uh, she's being she's being told she should apologize for it. Her name is Melissa Melendez. She's on the phone right now. I'm going to get to her. Uh, Republican from, or the representative from Lake Elsinore. And uh, here's what she wrote, and this is in the wake of the American hostage who was killed. Apparently, well, ISIS would have you believe by a Jordanian uh, bomb, but it doesn't really matter. She's kidnapped and held where she doesn't want to be. Anyway, gut-wrenching news today. American Kayla Mueller murdered by Islamic savages. There must be consequences. The reaction is, hey, you've offended Islam, and there are consequences. This is hate speech. You should apologize. Assemblywoman, are you going to apologize? Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. Um, no, I am I'm not going to apologize. I believe that CARE is the organization, as well as the Democrat Party Arab American Caucus, has asked for my apology, um, to which I have not offered. I have stated very clearly that it was never my intention to offend peaceful Muslims. Um, and if you read the tweet, that's very clear. I think it's very clear what my message was. I was talking about 
the people who murdered Kayla Mueller, the people who murdered the Jordanian pilot who burned him alive in a cage like an animal and videotaped it, the people who murdered the Japanese citizen, the people who murdered those in France. Those were the people I was talking about. Uh, I think CARE knows that. I think the Arab American Democrat Party caucus knows that. I think what they're trying to do is make themselves the victims rather than Kayla Mueller and all those others who lost their lives at the hands of Islamic terrorists. Well, I'm just the wrong guy to grill you on this because I read that and I got what you meant exactly. I mean, the reality is what they did was savage. Right. And they did it in the name of Islam. It may not be the way the vast majority of Muslims interpret Islam, but they did it in the name of Islam. That's what they're about. That's what they claim to be. They're, they've set up an Islamic state, their version of it. That's what they are. I, I, you know, I don't, and I didn't read that and think you're, you're insulting every Muslim or that I should rise up well, against all Muslims. That's not what I took away from it. But people did, and do you feel the least bit bad about that? The, the people who, you know, I, I sent out that tweet, uh, well, three days ago now on the, on the day that we heard the news of Kayla's murder. Um, and nothing, you know, really was said. It, nobody had anything to say about it until CARE decided to make it an issue, until the Arab American Democrat Party caucus decided to make it an issue and decided to, tr- to convince people uh, that I meant something that I didn't. That is when the kerfuffle started. So do I, do I think that most, uh, you know, Muslims who, who read it were offended? I'm not convinced of that. I think a reasonable person who reads that tweet understands exactly what I meant. Um, and it is just absolutely unbelievable and so disrespectful. Could the hashtag have been the problem stand up against Islam? The hashtag could have been the problem, but um, I think, you know, as I said in my statement, this is not about them, and this is not about hashtags. This is about the death of Kayla Muir. This is about the death of innocent people, and they're making it about themselves. Instead of, you know, I looked at Kara's website. There is no mention of them denouncing the murder of Kayla Muir. There's no mention of them being the murder of a Jordanian pilot. None of that. But but they want me to issue an apology. Um, it, it just it doesn't make sense to me. I think if if the, the, the peaceful Muslims who are in this area um, who stand with me um, in wanting to to eradicate ISIS and Islamic terrorism, if, if they want to stand with me hand in hand and denounce ISIS and denounce Al Qaeda and denounce the Taliban, I am happy to stand there and do that with them. Hashtag I'm out of time. Thanks for talking to us. Thanks, Bill. Assemblywoman Melissa Menendez, no apology coming, obviously. The guy who created hashtag is now talking about his rather unusual love lifestyle. We'll talk about that coming up. Bill Carroll, KFI AM 640.